Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast bringing you live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Last week, members of the National Constitution Center had a chance to attend a private screening of the new Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic on the basis of sex. The film depicts Justice Ginsburg's early life and legal career and tells the story of the landmark case Moritz versus Commissioner, the first gender discrimination lawsuit she argued in court. After the movie, Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center and author of the forthcoming book, Conversations with RBG, hosted a Q&A with Carrie Rickey, movie critic and chief book critic at Film Quarterly, Kelsey Corcoran, appellate lawyer and former law clerk to Justice Ginsburg, and Marty Moscowain, host of WHYY's weekday program, Radio Times. Here's Jeff to get us started. I'm Jeff Rosen, the head of the National Constitution Center. I will just jump right in. So I'm writing a book uh, called Conversations with RBG, which will collect our conversations over the years. Uh, And it's out in September, so my head is full of RBG biography. I've just finished Jane Hart's wonderful uh, biography, which I recommend to all of you. And I'm going to jump right in. Uh, I want to start by asking you, uh, Kari, what you you thought. But uh, it seemed to me, in addition to being incredibly powerful, and I just choked up when uh, she came up at the end, as, as you did, to be basically very historically accurate. It was written by her nephew, Daniel Stiebelman. Small little tweaks, she said at the dean's dinner, uh, I think that a woman should understand her husband's work, not should be a more patient wife, but basically very accurate and dramatic, powerful. What was your sense historically about how accurate it was? Uh, So uh, the the only uh, tweak that that, uh, I recognized was that the appendix to the brief that had the list of all the other laws was actually attached to the cert petition. Um, <laughs> right, so the, the government did not do that in the Tenth Circuit. Uh, they did it when they, they uh, uh, tried to get the Supreme Court's attention. Uh, the cert petition was denied, and at that point, Justice Ginsburg uh, took the, the list. And, and the reason I know that is because uh, there is, a, so Marty was scheduled to give a speech at the Tenth Circuit Judicial Conference two months after he died. And this story is makes I'm all emotional. I, I knew she was going to yeah. be at the end. She told me, and I still got all teary. Um, so uh, he passed away, and Justice Ginsburg went to the Tenth Circuit Judicial Conference in his place exactly two months after his death. Uh, and she said that Marty had written his speech uh, before he passed away and that she was going to read it. And she wouldn't be as funny as he was, but she was going to read it. And, it, and, and she spoke about this case uh, in that speech. Wow. As, I, know as, one, I know one more t- tweak. Yeah. Um, her nephew was uh, asked to call her every night and to read script to her to see if it was accurate. And um, she said, well, you know, I walked to Harvard every day. I would never have worn heels. <laughs> <laughs> And one night he called her and she, she said, honey, call me in an hour. I'm reading the Affordable Care Act right now. <laughs> That's spectacular. I, I have to ask, you know, we're marinated in all things RBG, but as a film critic, how did you think it worked as a movie? Well, I think it's really solid. I really liked it. I saw it before um, at a critic screening about two months ago, and it was me and seven men. We were almost a Supreme Court of critics. <laughs> and... Um, 
at the end, they're all saying, oh, what a piece of shit. And I'm weeping. I said, you're fools. Either you don't have kids or you don't have hearts or both. And I just walked out. <laughs> what, why, why would they have such a surprising reaction? They thought it was vanilla. They, they thought it was insufficiently dramatic. And as Gloria Steinem said in the RBG documentary, she's the closest thing to a superhero she knows. And I agree, this is much more interesting than a Marvel movie, don't you think? Um, Marty, you can adjudicate as a senior justice. Oh, absolutely. Well, Where's who your lace collar? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be married to Army Hammer slash Marty Ginsburg? <laughs> really? I mean, in many ways, it, it's a love story. Yeah, it's, and it's I a don't... wonderful marriage. <laughs> yes. And, there, and, and the stuff with her daughter. Um, it was the most remarkable marriage imaginable. Really? Now, the thing that Army Hammer did not have, Marty was much funnier. He was laugh out loud funny, and you would run into him, and she would crack up. Well, you know, she's very composed and uh, austere when you don't know her. But you'd just run into them at the, I'd run into the at the opera and stuff, and he would make quips that would make her just literally laugh out loud as well as everyone else. Um, one uh, other crucial theme to throw out: um, I interviewed her. Uh, at the end of the 90s and was in her chambers and looking around and she pointed to one picture and said, that is my hope for the future. And it was her son-in-law uh, holding her grandson, Paul. And at the time I thought it was a platitude, but then I realized based on all her speeches, she was saying, my hope for the future is when men and women take equal responsibility for childcare. She felt so, so strongly about that. How did you describe, Marty, your reaction to the relationship between Marty and Ruth in the film? Well, and I even have questions for, for you who know her obviously better than I do, but I, I wondered, would she be Ruth Bader Ginsburg without Marty Ginsburg? I don't, I don't know enough to know what the answer to that is. But clear, and vice versa. And vice mm, versa. But I mean, clearly it was a very powerful relationship. He looks like he was a wonderful cook, besides exactly. having clearly a, a great sense of humor. I love where he's eating his, hit the baby's food rather than her casserole. I like where he was <laughs> chopping the celery. I thought that was really impressive. But I mean, clearly they were, they were a match. It was one of the most storied marriages in history. Very difficult for anyone else to live up to because no one else could cook as well as Marty and be as thoughtful and they were so crazy about each other. Describe what it was like to spend time with both of them. So I, I clerked, uh, I think I interviewed with her about a year after Marty had died. Okay. So I did not get to meet uh, him. One of the stories you hear about him is that whenever the law clerks had a birthday, he would make a cake and send it in with the justice. Um, and they would have a party. She did continue that tradition. So she's still, for every one of her law clerks, um, will serve champagne, but she will get cupcakes um, from <laughs> Georgetown Cupcake or some, something like that. So uh, he, you can still feel his presence in chambers. His chair is still in chambers in the same mm -hmm. place. Um, no one sits in it. Uh, but, uh, but yes, he's. Uh, I think if she were asked the question, mm -hmm. um, she would say no, she would not. I mean, I, that's probably true for any spouses, right? right. We're, we're fundamentally changed. Yeah, right. You're one organism. 
But, but this was a really unusual match. You see it intellectually, and she tells the story when she was in the kitchen and he comes in with the tax case. That really transformed her view of gender. And remember, she was a professor. She started off by teaching civil procedure, and she was a specialist in Swedish civil procedure. And She went to Sweden and learned everything possible about the Swedish civil code, and gender discrimination became a passion of hers based partly on the Moritz case. So that was part of their influence. And the, and the childcare thing was very crucial. She said early on, you know, we sorted things out by banishing mommy from the kitchen. And, she, and he would take care of all the great uh, cooking. But um, the support, and she also said, they, you missed the story of how they fell in love at Cornell. Uh, it, you know, it's in the early 1950s, 1951. She's taking courses in constitutional law from civil libertarian hero, heroes like Milton Convitz. He meets her. She's uninterested in all the other guys she meets, and she says he was the first guy who really appreciated that I had a brain. And then she fell in love with him, she said, because he was so damn smart as well. And she's second in her class at Cornell, undergraduate, almost first in her class at Harvard, just absolutely brilliant. What, to what, what did you make of that scene when she's taking notes for him when he's ill? She actually did that. It's, it's amazing, and it, it certainly broadened her experience of, of law and that she could do her own classes and his and take care of a baby whose dad might be dying without falling apart like I would have. It's completely astonishing. But can I, I just have a statistic? Um, there are only, in the Supreme Court, only 30% of the justices, or 33% of the justices are female. Of the five movies, by my count, about Supreme Court justices, 40% of them are about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> and another 40% about Thurgood Marshall. Well, this is, there's one, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Yankee from Olympus, but there are not a lot of Supreme Court biopics. Yeah, the one other thing that they left out um, of her story, she did not graduate in, and go straight to applying to law firms. She clerked, uh, and she was initially, I don't know if, if folks have heard the story, she was uh, recommended to clerk for Justice Frankfurter as being first in her class. He was willing to consider a woman, but when he heard that she had a child, that was it. That was too much. She couldn't have a mother in chambers. So she ended up clerking on the district court for Judge Palmieri for two years and then uh, applied uh, later. I, 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 I held that story close to my heart because I had two children when I went to clerk for her. They were My son was four. My daughter was one when I interviewed with her. Oh. And at some point, as we sat there, I, I mentioned my children. And she asked how old they were. And, I, I, and maybe a minute later, she offered me the clerkship. Um, wow. And, I just felt, I know she had, she's had many clerks with children, but for me, the, the, the moment for her to be able to offer that to me when it had been withheld for, from her was really profound. She was uh, always impressed when clerks shared childcare responsibilities and praised a clerk, David Post, who worked at home to take care of his kids. How did your uh, husband help you out when <laughs> your kids were young, uh, when you were clerking? <laughs> I'm very lucky to have my own Marty. Um, wow. We also started dating in, uh, when we were teenagers and got married right out of college, and he is the primary caretaker for our children. He's a wow. teacher um, and made all of that possible. So actually, I, you've seen the I Descent Children's book. Um, my daughter was going through it, and she got to the place where it says, uh, Marty did the cooking, and mom argued in the Supreme Court, and I'm a Supreme Court advocate, and she said, we're just like the Ginsburgs. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's great. When I told the justice that, it made her, her laugh. Um, wow. So, yeah. 
What was your reaction, Marty? Just seeing the degree of sexism, that, mm. um, that true scene when the women had to stand up at the dean's dinner and justify their place, and the other just openly sexist comments, we've come so far from there. What, what was it like to just see it represented? Up, up well, first, it, it is such a reminder, in part how far we have come, but also that it wasn't that long ago. I mean, clearly, and I don't know if that was word for word, if, if, if what those women were asked to say about themselves and the reaction, whether that was true or not, but clearly that was some form of representation. I did actually... Google something today in preparation for tonight's discussion to find out, well, how many women are in law school now? And the, it's the majority of, yes. of law school students are women. So it's clearly- like 55%? Something, um, something yeah. like that. But I, she, was eight, she was one of eight out of, I'm not sure how many at Harvard, but. Mm -hmm. So there is progress, but it's yeah. still horrifying and shocking. And we know that it still goes on today. But one thing I would, as a Supreme Court advocate, one place we have not made progress is women before the court. You heard some actual footage of the justice. She argued six cases. Right. Um, last term, there were 100, I know this because I was talking about this on another panel, there were 158 uh, arguments handled by attorneys. 20 of them were handled by women. Um, and of those, uh, only four were handled by women in private practice. I was lucky to be one of them, uh, wow. which means the rest of them are all government assigned. Uh, cases. Uh, so four out of 158 were cases where uh, a woman was chosen to argue the case. So we have a lot uh, of progress to make. Yes. Clearly. I, I know she would want us to ask the question, why is that and how can it change? Hmm. Uh, I, I don't think we because can Because of the Justin Theroux character, the guy who played Mel Wolf. Because <laughs> they, think, they think male justices respond better to male arguments. I think that's probably part of it. I think that um, it's the sort of thing that perpetuates itself. So clients, when they have a high stakes case, want to hire the person who has the mm -hmm. most arguments. And we don't have any women who have been a former solicitor general other than Elena Kagan. Yep. And so you keep going back to the same people and they all tend to be white men. Yep. And it was so white. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, looking at this movie at, at that time and place is just not that it was largely male, but it was largely almost entirely white male, which... Yeah. I don't but know it how was really interesting today. at the generation down in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's class at Rutgers. There was a lot of women and yes. a lot of African-American women. Yes. yes, yes. One thing the movie conveyed so well is the extraordinary combination that Justice Ginsburg has of laser-like attention to detail and focus on the particularities of each case and the footnotes and that Welsh v. Welsh case, which he still cites, which rather than uh, striking down benefits for everyone, extends them to men with this crusading, broad, historical sense of passion. That's what makes her one of the greatest figures of our time. And the, the, the discipline and focus and particularity combined with the vision Describe how you saw that uh, working with her up close. Uh, she the, the, she was portrayed just in terms of her personality. I think exactly as she was in the movie, just brilliant, methodical. She works late into the night, every night. Um, everything has to be perfect. Every opinion, every she still edits by hand, and she goes through on a triple spaced uh, draft of the brief. Uh, she is fully on top of that. One of the most remarkable things when you clerk, you get a quarter of the cases you're responsible for. And yet she, she somehow knew all of the cases better than us, even though she was dealing with four times as many. Um, I, they, they were not overestimating her in, in any way. She is a, a force. Uh, 
staying up sometimes, as the books described, till three, four in the morning, sleeping a bit, coming in late, reading briefs by flashlight in the movie theater. And when people found out about that, they would send her flashlights from around the country yes. in the 90s. You know, the, the, there's been a lot of talk about her workout routine. Um, one thing that I have not seen mentioned in the press is that she will take her clerks to her workout. I once read out loud a brief to her while she was throwing a medicine ball <laughs> with Bryant. Um, uh, so yes, she does lots of things at once. Yeah. Now, I uh, may not be a typical audience member, but I, we both got, uh, we choked up when we saw the legal arguments. As a, you know, critic, consumer of the thing, is it just RBG who makes law this exciting? be effective in conveying the thrill of constitutional uh, litigation. I just thought it was it was very well written. I give uh, the director Mimi later props for just really showing more than telling. And yeah, you know, showing how showing their relationship, showing their intimacy, showing what they sacrificed for each other. Um, I think that her Arguments, uh, since I don't really understand the Constitution. Um, no, no, uh, no one really does, <laughs> but, except for RBG. Yeah, um, and uh, but she also shows, and I don't, I don't know when she was uh, in front of the Tenth Circuit, whether one of those um, justices actually asked her if she knew the three branches of government. That was pretty hard to take, but I think. I think it took a female director, even though her, her nephew wrote the script, I think it took a female director to show those subtle moments of condescension and patron, patronizing behavior from men. And uh, and I love how Sam Watterson was the most e evil man in the world. <laughs> the man who he played does so Atticus well. Finch. Yes. yes. I, you're, you're, you're right. I think that the argument did take liberties. I, I don't think they quizzed around the branches of government. And, and I guess it did leave out the gist of the legal theory. So you say you don't, you know, the, the constitutional theory that she came up with in Reed versus Reed was that sex, like race, should be uh, treated like a suspect classification and laws should be struck down unless they're necessary to achieve a compelling governmental interest. That was her argument in Reed and Reed and also uh, in why she supported the ERA. The court in Reed v. Reed didn't buy that and instead held, we're just gonna walk out here for a sec, that uh, sex-based laws should be subject to rational basis scrutiny and upheld if they're rationally related to a legitimate governmental interest. So the great contribution she made doctrinally was you had to come up with some reason and stereotypi stereotypical assumptions about the way men and women are wasn't rational enough to pass muster. That was her great innovation, and that was what was in power. Right. The, the, the moment of drama for the lawyers in the room was when our Army Hammer said, well, yes, it has to be arbitrary, uh, right, because that's saying that it's not, there is no heightened scrutiny. Uh, I'm curious if he actually said uh, that. Absolutely. I think legal arguments are, are made for theater and for movies. I mean, yeah. even if, if the constitutional issues are over our heads, I think there is something about the the two and the fro and the, and the the arguments themselves and the body language and all that. I mean, there are so many movies and and plays that are about about a, a court case. Yes, 
But what, were the, what was the drama that carried it as a movie? I think that the conflict between Wolf, Melvin Wolf and RBG was overplayed just to give us oh, a sense of her triumphing. Justin Drew was a ham. Yeah, he was. And he, they were friends in summer camp, uh, Wolf, and, uh, and they were in Gilbert and Sullivan productions together. And I think he was very supportive of her generally. And here they had him taking away the argument and giving it to Marty. So, but do you, do you need that kind of conflict in order to carry the thing dramatically? All, all drama is about conflict. And I think uh, gender discrimination is very abstract. And how the movie framed it so we understand it was a conflict for Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, is by the, um, how she endured with a great amount of grace those indignities of condescension. And, um, and there wasn't a conflict in the marriage, really, except that he had testicular cancer. So it, uh, the, the conflict was, can she, they, there was equality in the marriage except for her ability to be able to practice law. Mm -hmm. And she, be, she achieved that, that was the conflict. Yes. And um, I, I thought it was great. I don't, I don't think the law case was the, um, you know, in, Aristotelian drama. Usually, there's 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 a conflict that has to be resolved. Mm -hmm. I don't think that um, the case in front of the Tenth Circuit was resolved all sexism or all gender discrimination. But I thought I thought it was interesting, and um, I, I think it's a really strong movie. Please, people, everyone here, tell your friends to see it because it's uh, there's not a lot of faith in a movie about um, is she 88? 85. 85. She's RBG, 85. though. Yeah. yeah, she's RBG. The documentary got a lot of people to see it, but this there's not a huge amount of studio support for this. So please, that, the reason I said yes, I wanted to come here, I just want to say, tell your friends, please. It's, it's such an important movie, and it's so important for young women and men to know... <coughs> to know that there are parents like this. And I, I, and I knew nothing about her daughter, and I, I, I saw her daughter in the documentary, but I hadn't known that, as this movie has it, that her daughter helped radicalize her. And I don't know if that's true. I, I've only met her as an adult, so I'm not sure. One, the, the, the drama in the courtroom was interesting. That is, the, the back and forth is how oral argument happens now. Uh, Justice Ginsburg's first argument in Frontiera was 10 minutes long. She was not asked a single question. You can pull it up online if you yeah. Google. It's fascinating. And and it, that's partly because I think she was a woman and partly because there were less questions. Her second one was Weisenfeld, and she gets about 20 minutes in before she gets an argument from Pot or a question from Potter Stewart and then a follow-up by Warnberger. But I, I'd be surprised if that's actually what happened in the Tenth Circuit. Yeah. You, you could hear that. The tape uh, from the oral argument, that wonderful resonant yeah. voice. Harry Blackman, I think in the second argument, wrote Mrs. Ginsburg something like, too long Jew. He wrote it. Uh, really? But later they, of course, made plus, a, right? gave her a C plus, yeah, which was just preposterous. Wow. And, and, but that shows, too, what she was up against. And that's why she continued to try to represent men who she mm -hmm. thought would appeal to the chauvinist judges of that time, which was I'm, very effective. I also think that um, it's a way to get male empathy. I mean, I mean, as an activist in, I mean, let me just say this. There are, this year, 
The percentage of Supreme Court justices who are female, 33%. The percentage of women directing in Hollywood, 7%. So, I mean, the act to be act, to lead a movement, uh, to raise consciousness in any field. And the worst fields for women are, I believe, coal mining, directing, or uh, major positions in Hollywood, and architecture. Wow. Well, she believes, and she has taught us, that only by uh, strong representation of women, only when women have equal numbers of men in each profession, will there be true equality. She's concerned now. I asked her in a recent interview what remains to be done, and she said unconscious bias. And she expressed disappointment that one of the last cases that ruled against her was one where the Supreme Court said you have to have an intent to discriminate to violate the Constitution. She believes that unconscious, unintentional discrimination can be just as pernicious, and that is something that remains for social change. Marty, you are a master you're, uh, interviewer. When you saw the movie, if, she, if Justice Ginsburg were here, what follow-up questions would you want to ask oh, her goodness about? Oh, gracious. Yes. Actually, I, I, do have a, I would have a question for her, because I was going to put it to you. To explain her relationship with Justice Scalia. Mm. And apparently they loved opera and would go together, um, but they seemed on just opposite sides of the law in so many different ways. And so I would, I would be curious to just understand what, what that relationship is about, and perhaps yeah. you could answer that in her, in her yeah. stead. So uh, I, I did clerk when Justice Scalia was, was still alive, so I got to see some of that friendship and also the sparring back and forth of the cases. She has never used these words. These are my words, but I, I think they're consistent with what she would say, um, which is that good, smart people can disagree. Um, and so over the time... But also, yeah. good, smart people make each other better and smarter. I think they're like tennis players, master yeah. tennis players, who made who raised the elevated the level of their games. And I, I think that Justice Scalia, and you have the story about in the VMI decision that she wrote, the kind of the back and forth with Justice Scalia where they were honing each other's opinions. I don't think anyone has ever questioned Justice Scalia's integrity as a justice and the colleague he was. Uh, and so I think she had a lot of respect for, for him in that way that they, they really did sharpen each other. But again, those are my I words. Mean, as an hers. outsider, so that's just you know, watching. Yeah. We, we pick our sides. And so it's interesting to see people that are constitutional combatants have such a warm bond. So right before she was nominated to the Supreme Court, I went to a lunch with the law clerks of the DC Circuit, and uh, they told me that Justice Scalia had been there a few months earlier, and someone asked him, if you had to be locked in a desert island for your whole life with Lawrence Tribe or Mario Cuomo, who were then the two front runners for the seat, who would you choose? And he said without missing a beat, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> so, so I reported that story and uh, she told it at Justice Scalia's funeral. And they were friends on the DC circuit. They bonded over opera uh, and she said, he just makes me laugh. I mean, he also would make her laugh out loud. She said, he's a very funny man. He drives, sometimes I want to strangle him. He drives me crazy. But she just really laughed with him. And they would go to the opera together. They did have New Year's dinner every year. Marty would cook Maureen Scalia and Justice Scalia would go. They would sing around the piano, uh, which uh, Justice Ginsburg plays a little bit, uh, but her son-in-law plays really well. And uh, Justice Scalia loves to sing. And it was that uh, humor uh, that was a genuine friendship. And even after Bush v. Gore, which she was so 
angry about that she uh, registered her strong disapproval, uh, Justice Scalia called her up and said, uh, you know, I can't imagine how you feel. Go home and take a hot bath. I mean, that was, it wasn't get over it. It was, you know, this was really rough. Right. So it was a human friendship. I think my other question would be, how are you feeling? To I mean, to, oh, Gendred, I'm, only because she's, yes, had, she's had so many bouts of cancer and... I'm pleased to report we just heard from Chambers recently and she's doing well and she'll be back on the bench at the next session. So uh, we're really delighted that she's um, in, in great shape. Her, her last, her, she's you know, been diagnosed with cancer twice before. It was in 1999 and then 2009 and now it's 2019. So this is just every 10 years is what I'm telling myself. And we'll, Does she have another 10 years I, in her? I think so, yes. Uh, yeah. She needs at least another two. We'll see. I'm praying. It's, it's great. Um, uh, well, we could go on uh, for a very long time. Why don't we just share some final thoughts about hear about Justice Ginsburg's legacy? I want to give you the last uh, word. So, so Marty, Marty, what did you learn, and what, did, what has Justice Ginsburg inspired you to do? I learned that in the 1970s, obviously, when she was starting her career, I had no idea who she was. I mean, I didn't live in that world. I, I barely live in that world today. And to know that this extraordinary woman who had to learn how to argue before the court because it didn't seem like it came to her naturally was honing her talents and obviously her brilliance um, and managed to get her way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I had, you know, back in the 70s, I didn't know who she was. But we do now. Yeah. Sure do. Uh, I didn't know who she was until uh, President Clinton nominated her. And then I read about her. And um, I'm continue to be surprised by. I mean, I think the documentary, which I like very much, is a little hagiographic, but I'm I'm for I'm for uh, exalting her, <laughs> and I think I like the fact that she's a secular saint, yeah. and or a, a civ civic saint. Civic saint is a good word, and uh, I. I wish there were more like her. Here, here. Well said. Yeah. So uh, I think maybe combining both of these, I, uh, you know, she, the, the, the notorious RBG label wasn't until 2013, which was the year I clerked. I remember talking with her about who notorious BIG was. Were you, um, were you the clerk who I, told her? I was in the room when that happened. Wow. Um, and, and she didn't know, but you guys explained we it were, to her. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, <laughs> the, the, the trajectory of her fame, uh, just delights me in every way. She's always deserved to be recognized as a superhero and to see it just continue and continue. I, I hope we're not at the apex. I hope it, it keeps going. Um, and to have a role model for women who is 85 at a time where, as she says, most women are losing their voice, she's gaining. Um, but for me, what was most moving about it was what, what you said. She, you know, she's really a superhero, and she's always been a superhero to me. So to see depicted in film her struggling um, or unsure of herself just... I mean, gutted me because I, I have so many of those same feelings myself. So it was really um, just very moving. I'm, I'm so glad they made this movie. I'll just, Dean Griswold was a villain in this film as he should have been, but he did contribute a central part to her nomination because it was Senator Moynihan's ability to fax, and that's what it was in those days, Dean Griswold's statement that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the Thurgood Marshal of the women's movement that persuaded President Clinton to appoint her. And it was such a thrill to see the Thurgood Marshal of the women's movement, the great hero of gender equality of our time in all of her human 
Glory. Friends, thank you for joining. Thanks for supporting the National Constitution Center, and see you again soon. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.